0: You're listening to a message from Christian Life Ministries in Coventry, a dynamic, growing church in the heart of the nation. We pray that God will speak to you through this word and impact your life for His glory. Well, good afternoon. Let me try that again. Good afternoon. You may respond and reciprocate. It's okay. Uh, So good to see if you're here visiting us or here for the first time, a special warm welcome to you. Uh, great to have you here at CLM, and we pray you might feel at home among us, and uh, we're glad that you've come to the house of God today. Well, I, I don't know, uh, has anyone been enjoying the World Cup so far? Does anyone see the, the Spain-Portugal game? We, have we got any Nigerians in the house? You, you need to pray harder, okay, that's what needs to happen. You, you gotta pray, pray just pray a bit harder. Uh, I probably won't be saying that next Sunday after England have played their first game, so w- we hope you go from strength to strength this week. We did have a great time as guys yesterday, and thank you to those who came out to our Men's Connect and helped made it, make it work. Also, great to see the undisputed bungee champion of CLM, Daniel Hart, in the house. Give us a wave. This is uh, yeah, the undisputed champion. He, he got the furthest down the bungee run, so... Uh, Yeah, so that was amazing to see. I I had a little contest against my 16-year-old son, but uh, lost heavily. So that won't be happening again. Um, Also, would ask you to to pray this week for Esther. She's going to Lebanon tomorrow uh, for five days, coming back on Friday. And uh, she's going to spy out a work that we've been invited to connect with. And uh, as elders, we really feel in this season of what God's doing— that our, our mission focus needs to be so heavily upon Coventry. There's so many needs, and we've prayed into this. We have a sense that, although there is a massive world of need, that we have to push forward in the city at this time. I believe a day will come where this house reaches to the nations of the earth. But there is, there's a, I think, a, um, a sense in, in us as elders that what we've been connected to, the Lord might be asking us to get involved with. So Esther is going. It's a work that is uh, pioneered out of one of the great churches in the world, Casa El Dabara in Cairo, Egypt, that is doing an incredible work for God right in the heart of the Muslim world. Thousands of people with a huge missional focus, and they sent some missionaries into Lebanon where there's a window of opportunity to not only serve and help with love and humanitarian need, the Syrian refugees there, but also bring the gospel in an open environment. And an expectation that a day will probably come, as often happens in these crises where uh, things calm down and the Syrians return and the gospel may go. And, and Esther's just going to spy that out, have a sense of, Lord, are you speaking to us to get involved with this? And so do pray for her, pray for her safety as she flies into Beirut tomorrow and uh, pray that the Lord speaks clearly to us as elders and also pray for our kids because uh, I'm left in charge. So um, that's like a dangerous proposition. Uh, so yeah, just pray for them that they come through the week intact and everything is All right. Wonderful. Well, as has been said, it is Father's Day today. Esther's already referenced that. Uh, We acknowledge this can be a tough day for some. You don't need me to repeat those words, but we are aware. But you know, there is something incredible to celebrate today, which is the outrageous love of a heavenly Father. You know, whatever our earthly model has been, we have one who is so much greater and so much more wonderful, who has outpoured his love in the most unrestrained way, and I believe wants to impact our hearts and our lives, even today, as we gather the remaining of our service, that we might be impacted by His love afresh. 1 John 3 says, how great, can we say how great together? How great great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. That is what we are. Why don't you turn to your neighbor and say, you are a child of God. You know, this is the promise and the word of the Bible that we are the children of God. You know, if we look at the Old Testament, we we see this massive-hearted, loving Creator God in in the the garden. I think if we look with hindsight at Genesis, we see the Father with His kids walking in the garden. Talking with Mark Beswick yesterday afternoon about this and. And yet somehow in that moment, his kids are, are lost or partially lost, not through the carelessness of the father, but through him giving them the freedom to outwork their lives and sin and rebellion come again. And it's as if the rest of the Bible is the heart of God trying to recapture his children and many children. This is the God that we serve. There's a, there's a, a wonder for us as to the true nature of our relationship, the created with the creator, Mere mortal man, and the Bible says our days are like grass, uh, against this incredible, almighty, living God who is a consuming fire. What is the relationship between he who is so awesome and we who are so not? And yet, the revelation of the Bible is that he has called us sons and daughters. You know, we we look through the Old Testament and, and a nation of Israel learns to serve and learns to worship And yet we see a revelation, I think, that probably reaches a high point in Psalm 23 where David is able to say, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. This is language that hasn't really been used before. But David, who was a shepherd, who we hear that that when a lion came to attack the sheep, when a bear came... David as shepherd defended those, that such was his love, such was his care, such was his attention to the sheep. He knew what it was, but he says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be one. He leads me in green pastures. He guides me into paths of righteousness. And, this, and so we see that. But then Jesus comes and, he, and he's asked, how, how can we pray? Teach us how to pray. And he says, this is how you should pray. Our Father does not say my he doesn't say, well, well, guys, like, I'm a bit different, so I pray my father. He says, so how you should pray, our our father who art in heaven. He said we should come as children. This, this is brand new. This takes the shepherd model to another stage. And yet, this is what Jesus comes to show. Not just that he is the son of a heavenly father, but that the father love is for all of us and we can come adopted. Jesus is raised from the dead and he appears to Mary in the garden. Some of you know the incredible story where where he's he's there and he appears to her. He's literally, she's gone to the tomb and the tomb's empty and then he's, she sees him and she thinks he's the gardener, but then he turns and he says, Mary, and she realizes and she says, Rabbi, and she she holds on, like she falls down and holds on and, and he says, let go, it's okay. And he says, I am I'm returning to, and he says this amazing phrase, I'm returning to my Father and your Father. My Father and your Father. Something has happened through the work of the cross in an empty grave that has opened the way for us to be the children of God. And I don't know whether you believe that yet. I don't know whether you've grasped what that means yet. So incredible, the love of the Father for us. Romans 8 says, The Spirit you received... Speaking of the Holy Spirit, brought about your adoption to sonship, which means full legal status, whether a son or a daughter, you are have received full legal status before the heavenly Father. And by Him, the Spirit in us, we cry, Abba, Father, that by the Spirit we can come and say, God, you're my Father, Abba, Daddy, that we can come as children into the arms of a loving God. You know what kind of love is this? This his love is lavish. It's unreasonable. It's, it's unmerited. It's entirely sincere, and yet it's kind of wild. It's, it's almost reckless in the sense that it has no regard for the consequences. God has poured out His love upon us in the most extraordinary way. And I don't know I, about you, but I've had to go on a journey into this. Every time I've seriously, come before the Lord and say, give me a fresh revelation of your love. He's taken me deeper in, like that song of just singing, that deeper still, and I've, I've gone deeper and dared to believe at another level how loved I am by God. And yet, I know there is more, there is greater revelation. My prayer for you, whatever stage you may be at, maybe you're not even a, a believer yet, but today you might come to know that you're loved and accepted by God. But however mature you might, may be, I dare to say there is another revelation yet for you of how treasured and how precious, how adored you are by this living God. You know, at school, I, I can remember as a teenager having a crush on a certain girl, but I didn't have the courage to tell her. I thought about it a lot. I, 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 I thought about what I might say and what I might do, but do you know, I, I never actually managed to do it. I don't know if anyone can identify with that. Is that just me then? Okay, so so no one ever... You, okay, that was, that was just me, right? Thank you. There's now three honest people in the room. You know, but what happens is normal protocol, right, is that, is that if you like someone, you, you're perhaps a little bit shy about it. I know there are one or two people that aren't, but they're not normal, are they? But most people... Like if you, there's a little bit of you're unsure because what if it's not reciprocated? And sometimes that, that fear of, of a rejection, the fear of it not being reciprocated, the fear of looking foolish can, can hold our feelings in. But I remember going to university and uh, uh, there was a friend of mine called Rich and he really fell for this girl called Elspeth and, I, and, and he let the whole world know. But the problem was she wasn't feeling the same way but instead of kind of pulling back, he just pushed on forward, and he continued to pursue this girl. He continued to try and woo her, and he'd send flowers and poetry, and the whole world knew that he liked her, but she wasn't ready for it. Shameless. Like, I mean, there was no, there's no shame in this guy, and after about 18 months, she came round. Now, listen, I'm not recommending this, right? This is like, you know, normally if she says no, just accept it. She don't want you to go after her for 18 months, but it worked for Richard. And, and she fell in love with him. Uh. Wow. Yeah, I know. They got married. And as far as I know, they're still married, like 20 years later. You know, this is There's so much love in the room, God. We just pray. So you know, he was all out there. But you know what? This is actually. This might not be good advice for us in our relationships. But you know, this reminds me of who this reminds me of. This is what the Father's done. He, he's all out there. He's, he's not gone cagey with us. He's not, he's not shown a little bit of warmth and waiting to see if we show. He has given himself wholly, entirely. He said, I'm wild about you. I love you. I'm so passionate about you. You're the apple of my eye. And here I am. This is what the Father has said. This, this is Jesus on the cross. This is all oh, his love shown, demonstrated. And the question is, will we receive that? Will we respond to that? Will we get beyond the reality that we've done nothing to merit it and there's nothing we can do to earn it? You know, we're we're more comfortable trying to outwork our relationship with God according to our effort you now this is how normal relationships work. We, we learn it in the playground when we're little that, you know, if we're nice to someone, they might be nice back. That if I, if I share my sweets with somebody else, they might become my friend. It's kind of a reciprocal relationship. I'm kind, you're kind. We build kindness. It becomes a friendship. But, but we can't do anything to earn the love of God. And there's something inherently within our flesh that wants to that wants to outwork. It's like, if I pray more, if I read my Bible more, if I, if I do more, I might feel able to become closer to Him. But actually, I'm not encouraging us to live careless lives, but there's nothing you can do to, let, to get Him to love you more, and there's nothing you can do to get Him to love you less. We've got three kids, and when when we had kids, I... I properly got this because I can remember, you know, my my boys like a a day when things had been, you know, particularly bad and difficult. But then they went into their their beds, and I went in, and they're sleeping in their beds. And my heart, even though the day had been a shocker, my heart was totally unchanged. I love them just as much as I ever had. Nothing could change my. It doesn't matter what they do. I can't stop loving them the same amount. And if you're a mum or a dad, you'll probably get that, but this is how God is with us. If you've got a Bible, why don't you turn with me to Luke chapter 15. There's a story that's very well known. Most of you in the room may be familiar with it. Uh, Jesus actually is approached by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law because he's hanging out with so-called sinners, disreputable types, and they criticize him, and so he tells three stories, and the stories are connected. And he's trying to help them understand the love of God. He's trying to uh, trying to help them grasp the power of this love that is unconditional. And firstly, he he tells a story of a shepherd that had a hundred sheep, but one of them went missing, and such is his passion for the one that he leaves the 99 to pursue the one and go and find the one. His heart is such, he can't say, well, 99 out of 100 ain't bad. He wants to go and he finds the one and brings it back into the fold. And, and he says, this is what it's like when a sinner comes home. There's a party in heaven. This God who so loves the one. But do you understand, you are the one. I am the one. Uh, we... We are all the one that he has gone after. This is the heart of God. It's what Jesus is saying. And then he tells a story about a woman who had 10 coins and she lost a coin. She turns the house upside down and she's so excited when she finds the missing coin that she gets her neighbors and says, we've got to have a party. I mean, like they're bothered that she found a coin, but she's so excited about it. She says, this is what God's like. He's so excited about it. We might not get it, but he gets it. And then... Probably the most famous of the three what's sometimes referred to as the prodigal son or the lost son. But if you actually want a title for today, I'll call it the running father. The the picture of the running father. This is what the message says. Luke 15 verses 11 to 24. Then he said, this is Jesus, there was once a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, father, I want right now what's coming to me. So the father divided the property between them. It wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country. There, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything he had. After he'd gone through all his money, there was a bad famine all through that country, and he began to hurt. He signed on with a citizen who assigned him to his fields to slop the pigs. He was so hungry he would have eaten the corn cobs in the pig slot, but no one would give him any. That brought him to his senses. He said, all those farmhands working for my father sit down to three meals a day. And here I am starving to death. I'm going to go back to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. He got up and went home to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His heart pounded. He ran out, embraced him and kissed him. The son started his speech. Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father wasn't listening. He was calling the servants, quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then get a grain-fed heifer and roast it. We're going to have a feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here, given up for dead and now alive. Given up for lost and now found. And they began to have a wonderful time. Or the traditional version, they began to celebrate. The running father, Kenneth Bailey The author of Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes in his book, The Cross and the Prodigal, explains this story in the light of historical context. And it's so powerful. It's so illuminating if we can grasp what Jesus was saying to his hearers 2,000 years ago. I'd like us to look at the significance of the departure, the dilemma of the return, the humiliation of the father, and the choice of the son. Firstly, the significance of the departure, I think we can miss it. It can be lost to us. But the setting here in the story is rural village life in the Middle East. And the son demands his share of the estate. We've just read, I want what's coming to me, he said. Or traditionally, give me my share of the estate. We mustn't glaze over how outrageous this is. He is saying, I want to have what I will get when you die and by inference, he's saying, I don't care if you were dead. Bailey says that in villages all across the Middle East over 40 years, he's asked the question, what would happen if a son said this to his father? And he said, without question, the same reply has come back to him. And the reply has been, it would never happen. This, this would never actually happen happen. Such is the outrage, such are the implications of a father, uh, of a son, I'm sorry, saying this to the father. The son is also despising the family. He doesn't use the word inheritance uh, because with inheritance comes responsibility. The implication would be that when the, the father dies, he passes on the inheritance, which probably means a number of properties and land and provision and maybe cattle for the rest of the family. That the sons would represent the family in village life. But here the son is coming and saying, sell up half of everything. Let me have the cash and leave the rest of the wider family to survive under half of what they've been living on. He utterly disregards the rest of the family. Such is the outrage. Takes no responsibility for inheritance. And the father really should have rebuked him and put him in his place but instead instead he gives him the freedom to rebel and to sin i find that very powerful but you see there's a tradition in village life and if this ever were to happen if a if a jewish boy was to take the wealth of the family and go and squander it in the, among the gentiles and try to, and have the audacity to return to the village then he risked what was this tradition called kazaza. And what, what kazaza meant was that he wouldn't be allowed to come back in the way that, that he had previously been. And a jar, if he was to come back, the villagers would get to hear about it. They would come before him and they would take a big pot and they would break it on the ground. They'd smash it and they'd say kazaza, which literally means the cutting off. They'd be saying, you're cut off. You're cut off. You can't walk back in here and pretend to pick up. You've left your family for dead. You've gone off and, and you are now ostracized. You cannot come back into this village in the same way. And the village would actually protect the family because the family would not have to see the son. They'd not have to go through the agony of dealing with this. The son may plead to be allowed to stay and speak to the family and he might be kept on the edge of the village and after a number of days when he'd had time to think through what he was asking, he might be summons to the family and have to work through whether he'd be allowed to stay and under what terms he'd be allowed to stay. But in our story, the son is burning his bridges. He doesn't plan to return. But of course, as he sets off to pursue his dreams, we read that the unthinkable happens, and his wealth is squandered. A famine then hits the land where he is, and he's starving, and it's all ruined, and like water spilt out on the ground, it's all gone, and there's nothing he can do to get it back. He's in pain. Secondly, we, we need to look at the dilemma of the return. You see, he he'd gone and probably with no intention of ever returning and the village never expected to see him again. But now here he is at the absolute end of himself. And he's got this dilemma. You cannot imagine a day goes by where he doesn't think about the failure of his own actions. He doesn't think about the consequence of what he's done and that he doesn't think about the family. He doesn't think about growing up in the village and Uh, And wishing probably that he was still there and he would not done what he had done. But there's a dilemma because he knows if he returns, he risks Kazaza. He knows really he can't ever go back. There is no way back for someone that's done what he's done. And so there is this wrestle going on for a period of time inside of him. The story says that he signed on with a citizen or, well, the verb is Kalu. It means that he clung on. He was like a leech to this citizen. And the implication of the word citizen means that this person had wealth. And so he's like there hanging on to this person of wealth in a land of famine in, in the hopes that he might just be able to stay alive. But in this Gentile country, he's sent to work with the pigs, the Jewish boy for whom pigs are, are unclean. And he's there. He wanted to eat the pig slop. The Bible says he's so hungry, but he'd gotten on. And, and then the Bible says he, he came he came to his senses. He came to his senses. It's as if there's this eureka moment that he woke up and realized it. And yet, Kenneth Bailey doesn't think quite so much. He, he says in 1,800 years of Arabic and Syriac translations, it didn't say he came to his senses. It always said he hatched a plan. There's this inference in, in the tradition that, that he wasn't, that his heart turned back towards the family. It's that his heart was still actually hard. But he was trying to work out something for himself. And so he comes up with this speech. But the speech is interesting. And Jesus puts it there where he says, I have sinned against God and I've sinned against you. Which are the words that we find in Exodus 10. Which are the words that Pharaoh said to Moses. Pharaoh, whose heart was hardened against Israel. And, and Pharaoh says to Moses, I've sinned against Against God, and I've sinned against you, and yet we understand that really his heart wasn't right. And so here we have the son, and he said, I could go back and say, I've sinned against God, I've sinned against you. And there's this is implication for the hearers, the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law. They would be familiar with this phrase, they would know exactly where it comes from. And the inference is the son is trying to hatch a plan to find a way to come back, but really, at this moment in the story, in his heart, he's still lost. And yet the Bible. Says that he he headed for home, but what happens next would have rocked Jesus' hearers to the core, and and they should rock us. You see, in the rabbinic tradition, there was a similar story. There's a story that goes: there was there was a man who had two sons, and one of them came to the father and said. Uh, let me have everything that is due me uh, and let me go. And this happens and he goes and he squanders the wealth and then he comes to a point of trying to return and he says, let me come back as a hired hand. And he comes back as a hired hand. And the father says, okay, you can come back and work as a hired hand. And the moral of the story in the rabbinic tradition is that through humility of action and repentance, then you can receive some grace. So it's almost up to this point, the hearers know what's coming, but then something different happens. And thirdly, we see the humiliation of the father. You see, this is a culture of face-saving, of pride and of dignity. It's the culture of kazaza and village tradition. But you see, the father is not angry the Father's longing. The father, the father isn't bitter. The Father's brokenhearted. We find the Father not negotiating, not showing grace for a high We find the Father looking at the horizon. We find the Father sitting on His step, just looking out, brokenhearted, almost implicating that. He is waiting and hoping and praying every day that the son whom he loves so much might return. Wow. The Pharisees weren't expecting this to happen. And Jesus then telling the story, he says that that he saw him and he was filled with compassion. And he ran. The the word draman means he raced. He did what no man over the age of 25 in that tradition would ever do. It's seen as undignified to run. Have you ever seen a head of state running? Or have you ever seen the queen breaking into a, a jog? Why not? Well, not because she's 90-something, but like, I mean, have you ever seen it? No, why? It's, it's not dignified for heads of states to be seen running. And it wasn't dignified. But here, the father, he breaks with any protocol. And, and the Bible says he raced, drum, and he, he took off. He saw the sun and he didn't care. He's like, he just doesn't care about what it looks like. And he pulls up his clothes and, and he sets off and runs for the sun. Maybe he's desperate to get there before Kazaza. He's desperate to get to the son because he loves him so much. Before anyone could break a jar, and he comes and he, he goes after the son. This is such an incredible image. The father disgraces himself. You know, it's fair to assume that, that the village kids like, see this guy running, never seen it before. And maybe they started running too. I mean, when we get there, he says he turned to his servants. It's like everybody rocked up. We have this view. It's just the two of them that meet. I think everybody showed up. I think all the other adults, they want to get there too, but they can't break into a run, but they kind of go and just kind of get as fast as they can to see what is happening here. We've never seen this before. Maybe the son is coming back and the father arrives at the son. You know, love can lead to humiliation. A few years ago when our kids were little, We'd gone on a, on a day off to pick them up from school. The, school. the primary school where the boys were going at that time was about a 20-minute walk from our house, and we'd walked to get them, got back. As soon as we got back home, Sam, who's our eldest, who was probably something like eight at the time, remembered that he'd left something uh, at school, and it was a Friday afternoon, and he wanted it for the weekend. So I said, okay, listen, we'll head back. Jump in the car. And we went. And when I, we went and got it. when I got back, Esther said, Martin, Anna Grace is missing. Now, Anna's our little girl. She was three at the time. Uh, and I said, what do you mean? She said, she's not here. I'm going to phone the police. And I was like, hang on. She'll be here somewhere. she to be here somewhere. She's, she's like, no, I've looked. But I'm like, well, l- give me a moment. L- let me double check. And we didn't have a massive house. It didn't take long to check. It didn't take long to find out. She actually wasn't there. And so Esther's like, I'm going to phone the police. I- I'm like, just uh, hang on a moment. And there was a corner shop near where we were, and, and I thought, maybe she's just gone there, because we used to go there to buy some sweets. And, and so I said, let, let me run to the shop. So I ran to the shop, and she's not there. I, I couldn't see her. And as I started, as I'm coming back, I started shouting. I thought, if she's just, I don't know what's happened. Maybe she's seen a butterfly, or, you know, who knows? She's three. And I'm like, I started shouting, Anna Grace! Anna! Anna! And it's like, I don't care what I look like in this moment. I like people are looking out their windows going, what? There's a madman. But I'm like, I I did not care. I was so I was ready to utterly humiliate myself. My girl was missing. My daughter was missing. You know, in a moment of time, I saw myself in one of those kind of press conferences with the police. You know, it's like nothing ever happened in our world, but like where on earth could she have gone? And I'm shouting at the top of my voice that she might have just got distracted be somewhere and hear me. And we know where she is. What happened was she wanted me and so had heard that we were going to go back to school. And she thought that we were going to go back the way that we'd gone, i.e. on foot. And so as Sam and I had gone in the car, she'd set off barefoot, age three, with a little blanket, walking back to school. Like a mile away from the home, she's on this track between the front nine and the back nine of a golf course. And as she's there, there's a, a group of four guys are crossing over from the, from the front nine to the back nine. And they see this little girl. Like she's three, she's barefoot, like there's no adult around. And they're like, hello. And she's like, Hi. And, uh, and they're like, where's your mom or dad? She said, oh, I'm, I'm going to find my dad. It's like, well, wh- where is he? He said, oh, he's, he's gone to school. So, the, so one of the guys go, where do you live? And she remembers the, the road, which was helpful for a three-year-old. And she says the road, and it turns out one of the, the grace of God, one of the four guys lived on our road. There's only like 30 houses on our road. So he phones his wife and says, there's a little girl, like she's, she's from our road, um, and so I'm running around our road, going Anna Grace, and this woman comes around going Anybody lost a girl? You know, it's like, I was like, oh. so like, where is she? She's in the golf the golf course. I'm like, what? So like, I just ran as fast as I could, and, I, and I'm getting there. I'm thinking now, I am so happy to see her, but I need to be so serious also because this this must never happen again. And I'm kind of in that mixed moment. But I just pick her up. But here's the thing. You know, love is prepared to humiliate itself. And Jesus tells his story. And if we get under the skin of it, we understand the humiliation of the Father. You know, the village rocks up. There should have been Kazaza. But it's like, they're looking at it. They're like, wow, there's, there's no Kazaza. We've never seen this before. Why? Because God loves his children so much. This is the story, church. This is the this is the parable of the running father. He throws his arms around the son. He embraces him. And yet, you know, we, we see also the choice of the son. If Bailey's right and his, his heart really hasn't changed, he's got a moment of confrontation that he so wasn't expecting. He's probably rehearsed this moment For days, maybe weeks, maybe months. He knows he's going to come to the village. He expects somebody to find him. He expects Kazaza. He expects not to be allowed to see his family. He expects maybe if he pleads enough, he might get summons. And he doesn't know what he's going to get. And what he gets is his father running towards him. And in this moment, he has a choice to make himself. How is he going to respond? And it might seem so obvious that of course, this is so much better than he could ever have imagined. And he's going to melt and collapse into his father's arms that that is going to break him. But the truth is that he had a plan. You know, he expects to go and, you know, maybe if he sticks to his game plan. He shows himself to be a man. He salvages some pride. Maybe he takes his punishment. He does what any self-respecting person should do and, and doesn't come back as a son because he shouldn't come back as a son. And he has a moment. Is he going to accept the love of the Father? You know, it's a, and it's all out there. The village is there. It's almost like a one of those public marriage proposals. Have you ever seen like in a football stadium and the camera comes on and a guy gets down on one knee and there's 30,000 people there and you're kind of thinking, I, I hope she says yes. But you're also thinking, I hope she doesn't say yes just because of the pressure. And it's there, and, and the son, I believe the son has a choice to make. I believe as sons and daughters, we have a choice to make. The father has not hidden his love. He's, he's made no disguise of it, but we have a choice to make. And in a brief moment, the father is more vulnerable than the son. You see, the son could say, oh, Dad. We both know this is not right. It will be better for everybody if we do what the village expects. But the father hasn't played the game. It's all out there. And the son begins his speech. I've sinned against. And it says, I love it in the message. It says, but he wasn't listening. The father's not listening. The father's having none of it. And so the son receives the embrace. They're both humiliated. And the father says, Get the ring, the, the family ring, the one with the crest. This is a son. He says, Go get some sandals. Slaves go barefoot. But sons wear shoes. Go and get some sandals for him. Go and get the robe for him. Go and get the calf ready. We're gonna have a party. This is not a servant returning. My son has come home. My my son is home. This is my son in front of everybody else who expects something different, who knows what's happened. And he says, this, let me make this very clear. This is a son of my house. And the village is like, okay, the father's overruled We Wow, there's a party. Let's get ready for the party. And this is what happens. I wonder would the band come. The son was dead, but now he's alive, given up for lost, but now found. You know, I love this picture of the the son's return, the father's embrace, the love of the father. But you know, as we finish, friends, we have a choice. How great is the love the father's lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. You know, part of us can refuse to receive this love because we don't feel worthy we, we're aware of the things that we have done that, that mean we don't merit His love. We're aware of the things we haven't done. And yet, while I'm not preaching a carelessness of our lives in this moment, can I encourage us just to receive the love of the Father? Today, to dare to believe that He loves you with an everlasting love. There's nothing you can do to get Him to love you more. and There's nothing you can do to get Him to love you less. That somehow he's even humiliated himself on the cross, this creator of all things. Why? Because he's wild about you. And he doesn't want servants. He wants daughters. He wants sons. And we can come. Now I wonder, can we stand together? We're going to sing a song. It will be new to some of you. Some of you will know it anyway. That speaks of this almost reckless love of God, the God that bears no consequence. This God who would tear down and break down anything to come after us. And as we sing this, I, I would encourage you to enter in, encourage you to receive the love of God, to receive the love of the Father, to know that you are treasured by Him. Just throw open your heart. Let abandon come to your world. It might help you just to position yourself to receive something from heaven today this God who is so wild about you and I pray God as we sing this song would you come and open up our hearts help us to respond like the sun in this story whatever we've done wherever we've been that we might not refuse your love but receive it oh God we say thank you come and move in this place by the power of your spirit